If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <coughs> Let's go to the Lord. Father, as always, we are grateful for the privilege we have to worship you. Father, as we come before you this morning, we again are reminded of your majesty, of your greatness, of your mercy, of your kindness. As Father, we have prayed, as we have read the word, as we have sung together praises to your name, repeating, rehearsing of your greatness and all that you've done for us. Father, as part of our worship, we, we collect tithes and offerings to offer to you to be used as you see fit, to further your kingdom, to do the good that you've called us to do. We ask for wisdom as to how we handle the finances of our church. Father, we come to the portion of our service that we have committed ourselves to the opening of the word and lingering there for a while as we read the text, as we seek to uh, understand not only what is being said, but Lord, how these things apply to our lives today, how we are to, to think about how life is lived, how we are to think about how we speak, how we pray, how we do everything. Father, it's our desire to do everything, to live in a way that brings honor to you that reveals that we know who you are, that we love you, that you would use us, Father, in the lives of others to do good and to share with them the great gospel message of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask for your blessing on our, on your t on our time and your word. As always, we are so grateful, Lord, that you have given us your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 10, once again, verses 3 through 6, Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Over the past several weeks, what we've been looking at is really the application of this passage as Paul speaks of the kind of warfare he's not engaged in or the weapons he's not using in spiritual warfare and what he is using in spiritual warfare. The idea behind this is again he is combating those who have come into the church who have been bragging about their spirituality basically. Talking about they are more or mentioning that they are more qualified than Paul is in the way that uh, they have lived life and experienced God. And so they are claiming this authority for themselves, trying to, uh, in their mind, usurp Paul's position. They want to have the kind of authority in the lives of the Corinthians that they see that Paul has. And so they're trying to kind of wrestle that away from him. Though he, you know, he didn't try to get that, he, he just is that because he knows the Lord, he's an apostle, uh, and he spent his life you know, teaching them and discipling them. And so they're trying to usurp that by getting the eyes of the congregation off of really God, off of these spiritual principles that, that Paul has taught them, and think about life and think about spirituality in a fleshly way. And the idea is because we have these experiences, we have authority, because we have a better education, whatever the case may happen to be, you should be listening to us and not to Paul. And then they've tried to say that, you know, besides, you can tell that Paul is not really qualified and then they've tried to point some things out about him that they find detrimental uh, about him by twisting uh, the understanding that people have about Paul and why he does the things that he does and why he says the things that he says. And we face that again in our lives as Christians. 
It may not specifically be in this church because we seek to guard against those things specifically. But in Christianity as a whole, there's always been a group who is claiming that they are more spiritual than others. Maybe even more spiritual than uh, the pastors of local churches. They, by claiming they have these special revelations and these special experiences and this special knowledge. And so there's this teaching, uh, many different types of teaching that goes out that really takes our eyes off of Christ, takes our eyes off of the Word of God while using the Word of God. Uh, that's a tactic that the devil has used for a long time. Remember, again, that when Satan tempted Jesus, he quoted the Scripture. Uh, he was using the Word of God to, in a wrong way to, to lure Christ into sin. Uh, and so we need to keep that in mind. And so as we think about that, then in the day and age which we live in, uh, we've been talking about some of the things that have kind of infiltrated the church. There's many different kinds of bad teachings that have infiltrated the church. Uh, but we have been looking specifically at the idea or the category of what's called spiritual warfare. Uh, and the idea is, is that um, it is really an exciting area, which I guess it can be. Uh, but the idea there is that you need special phrases. You need special kinds of prayers. You may need special gifted Christians to be able to engage uh, in spiritual warfare and come out victorious. And so you need, you need to, to buy in to the kinds of things that they're saying. And so we're going to look at another one of those things today. Uh, and that is a phrasing that is used in a lot of places. And that is the binding of Satan. Uh, if you watch certain TV preachers and uh, maybe if you've gone to some churches or maybe even some people that you know, uh, you know, they'll, they get excited about what's going on and they, they want to bind Satan. Uh, and individuals sometimes, that sounds exciting. Oh yeah, man, we're going to bind Satan. You know, we're going to make, we're going to forbid him from doing anything here and, you know, God's going to be glorified. And so I think people really mean well uh, at times when they say that, but it sounds a lot more exciting, you know, to kind of confront the devil in person. Uh, and bind him. We feel powerful. Uh, we're told that we've been given this authority to go and bind him. Um, of course, that leads to a lot of other questions, but the bottom line is, is that when, when that phrasing is used, it is believed by those who use that phrase, at least they're being taught this, that when you bind Satan, you are limiting Satan, or you are hindering Satan, or you are really prohibiting Satan's activity in a sphere in which he is bound. So you might pray that Satan be bound from a certain event, uh, and therefore he is prohibited from having any influence or power over an event. It can be a prayer to God to bind Satan, or in some cases the individuals teach that you yourself can command Satan to be bound. Some say that when you're binding Satan, you must include the blood of Jesus in your phrasing uh, to do so successfully. So again, a great deal of the spiritual warfare, the tactics that are passed on today, they presume the authority of the believer over the devil. And so they would teach that God has granted the Christians this authority to go out and to bind Satan. So we have to ask this question, is that true? Is it biblical? If we bind Satan, how long does it last? Yeah. Who cuts him loose? Where do we get this from or where is this found in the Bible? Well, Matthew 12 is one of the passages that they use. It reads, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what is taught is that Satan is the strong man and sinners are in his possession. To rescue a loved one from Satan's grasp and influence, we must first bind Satan. 
Well, if you look at the context of Matthew 12, uh, what we have here is this binding is a metaphor to show that Christ's power over, uh, to show Christ's power over Satan. Remember that Jesus has been accused of uh, performing his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, remember we've said before oftentimes in the teaching through the Gospels uh, that the Jews believe, this is not a biblical teaching, it's from Jewish theology, uh, but they believe that they would recognize the Messiah or the way they would be able to recognize the Messiah is that the Messiah would do many miracles. And so the questions they would ask them, well, wait a minute, there are many individuals who do miracles. How will we know which one is the Messiah? And so the way the teaching goes is, well, the Messiah will do miracles that have never been done in Israel. And then that question is, well, what miracles would those be? And so there's the healing of a, of a blind man, or a man who's born blind. Uh, there's the healing of a leper. And then there is the casting out of a demon from a person who is unable to speak. And so when that is done, that gives evidence that that individual is the, um, is the Messiah. Jesus does all of those miracles twice. Again, he wasn't bound to uh, from Scripture, but he did each one of those twice. Um, many of the Jews, a majority of them, understood what Messianic miracles were. And so when Jesus does cast out the demon from someone who cannot speak, the crowd does ask a question. Could this be the son of David? They're asking that. that. That's a messianic title. And so when that takes place, this miracle is done twice. And when, and when it takes place the first time, the Jewish leadership that's there, because there's a group following Jesus around, they say that, no, he's not the Messiah, but they, are, but they have to explain how he can do this miracle that everyone else believes only the Messiah can do. And so they basically accuse him of being demon-possessed, that he does it by the power of Beelzebub. And so Jesus shows the, the lack of logic in all of that. And so when he gets to this place here, um, he's basically explaining to them that you can't do this unless you have this power. And he has the power to bind Satan, and so he's able to do the things that he's able to do. But you'll notice that when you read through this, there's no command that Jesus gives to his... He doesn't tell his disciples, go and do likewise. You know, that's not in there. Um, this isn't an example for us to follow. He didn't tell us even how he did that. He's just making the statement that he is stronger than the strong man. So again, he's refuting logically the claim that his power came from the devil. In Matthew 16, verse 19, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So again, what people do with this, oftentimes, they say, well, what Jesus is teaching us here is he's giving us instructions on how to build the church, and you can only build the church if you can bind Satan. And they would then point to this verse as being the proof uh, that we are able to do that. Let me read to you verse 19, again, from the Amplified, from Matthew chapter 16. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind or declare to be improper or unlawful on earth must be what is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, declare lawful uh, on earth must be what is already loosed in heaven. So the Amplified, again, remember that when you read the Amplified, it's, you're, it's like you're reading a translation and a commentary at the same time. So keep that in mind when you read through that. But they do a good job here in helping us to understand immediately really what is meant by bind. It is declare improper or lawful. It's got nothing to do with tying somebody up uh, or tying them up in a chain. Binding and loosing is a metaphor that was used by the rabbis uh, for declaring something being forbidden. 
or to declare that something was permitted. And so it's critical that we pay attention to the grammar that is used there. And not every translation really does the best job in indicating what he's talking about here. And what I mean by that is, again, in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So it's the term there, or those words, shall be. In the Amplified, when I read it, it says, um, whatever you bind on earth must be what is already bound in heaven. Again, that is a very accurate translation of what is meant by the verb there. Um, it is something that has already taken place. And so I think I have in your notes there that in some of the Greek study books that you can get, there's a footnote uh, with the verb will be. And so the King James Version, the New King James Version, the English Standard Version uh, uses the verb or uses the phrase shall be. And so it's not technically incorrect, but it's not what is best. Um, and so there's a note that you'll come across in the, in the notes concerning the Greek, and it will say that it is better, it will read, have been. So the New American Standard has, shall have been. In the Christian Standard Version, it says, is already bound. In other words, this verb is a future perfect tense, and that makes a really big difference in what Jesus is saying. So again, if it is said, it's something that will be, that would mean that Peter would be setting policy in heaven stating that if you then say this is unlawful, it will then be done in heaven, agreeing with you that it is unlawful. But the future perfect tense in this really means that, Paul, that Peter is actually just being discerning. And he's responding to what God has already done, basically, in heaven. That he's just declaring unlawful what God has already declared to be unlawful. And that was Peter's job. That was the job of the apostles. Uh, that was the task of every one of them and every true follower of Jesus. What we do is we declare what heaven has declared. So when we read in the Bible, so simple example, when we, when we state or tell someone that adultery is sinful, we are simply declaring what, the, what heaven's already declared. That's what we're doing. And that's what we are to do. Uh, when, we, when we are talking to an individual and you tell them that and say they're engaged to be married, and they, and they should not, and it is sinful for them to engage in physical relations before they get married. That is sinful. We're telling them that is sinful. That's not because it's our opinion. We are declaring to them what God has said. We agree with what God has said because we've submitted ourselves to what God has said. And again, we are, we are declaring what has already been stated really in heaven or from heaven. And that's the idea that is here. This, so this command of, uh, or this statement here by uh, and that we find in Matthew chapter 16 is not telling us to go do something and, and therefore you have the authority to do this and when you do this, it's now done in heaven. That's, that, it's the reverse of that is really what's going on here. So Matthew makes it absolutely clear that Peter is not the only one given this responsibility. It's given to the apostles and really to those who are the true followers of Jesus Christ. It's very similar to what you find in Matthew 18 or whether the identical promise is made, but again, Peter's not mentioned in Matthew 18. Um, and you'll read that in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus is speaking to all the apostles. In fact, you could say he is speaking to the church as a whole, because in the very next verse uh, in Matthew, it says this, I will tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So this is always interpreted as, as this being believers, 
um, not just two or three apostles. And the idea here is that this promise of binding and loosing the authority of the church is not exclusively the property of Peter or even the apostles. It is the authority of the church that God has given to those who truly love Christ. So the question is, so can we bind Satan? Well, the answer is no, we can't. However, what Jesus is saying here in these passages to believers today is you and I can go into the world and we can say your sins are bound on you or your sins are loosed from you. We don't really talk that way. So we can say your sins are forgiven or your sins are not forgiven. We can do that. We have the authority to do that. And some people say, whoa, 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 now wait a minute. Where do you get that authority from? How in the world can we have that authority? Well, the text says that what we're doing here shall have already been done in heaven. So do you want to know how we can know what heaven is approving and disapproving? It's in the Bible. I have the authority. If a person comes up to me, uh, I can say to that person, have you received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If they say yes, I can say to them, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are loosed. And I've, there have been times I've actually had to say that to an individual. I've told you before that sometimes an individual who they become a believer, they've confessed their sins, they believe that their sins have been forgiven, and as they begin to grow as a believer, they, are, they, they begin to, their heart continues to soften, and they become not only more sensitive to sin, they become even more sensitive to sins they may have committed in the past. And they begin to feel really bad about maybe certain things. And there's been a few times where I've spoken with a woman who has really come to grips with an abortion that took place in her life in her past. She wasn't really thinking about that, in particular when she came to Christ. And as she's been growing, she then, maybe she hears a message on that, and she's never really put all that together. And she realizes really what that sin entails and they begin to feel a great deal of guilt. And along with that, there may be this sense or feeling that they're not forgiven of that. It's all, they're, they're not really thinking that God didn't know they had done that, but they're kind of thinking in that way, like, well, I, I didn't really confess it, and if God knew I did that, he wouldn't forgive me. Even though they know that doesn't really make sense, that's how they're feeling. You know how good it is to be able to look that person in the eye and say, I can guarantee you that you have been forgiven of that sin. That, uh, that, that I don't say, I don't say, as the pastor of Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church, I, I can assure you, you are, no. I don't say I forgive you of that. I don't say because I've been ordained to the ministry, I have the ability to, no. I am just simply declaring to them what's already been done in heaven. She is forgiven. And that's what they're talking about here in this passage. Someone says, I have never received Christ. I've never placed faith in Jesus Christ. I do have the authority, based on the word of God, to tell that individual their sins are not forgiven. You won't be forgiven. I have said that to people before. I've talked to an individual, and they're, you know, this usually, a lot of times these discussions, because they're very open, what happened in a, in a jail setting when I was a jail chaplain and I was talking to a man and so he, he kind of confessed some things he had done and he said, he said, I really hope that uh, you know, I'll be forgiven one day. And I said, I can assure you, you will not. And he was, he was kind of startled by that. He was, what do you mean? I said, I guarantee you, 
your sin will not be forgiven you. It is not forgiven now, and it will not be forgiven in the future. He goes, how can you say that? I said, because forgiveness only comes from one place. And I explained to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wasn't as a jail chaplain or representative of some organization telling him that, he, uh, that his sins were bound to him and there was no way he could get rid of them. But I was telling him exactly what's already been declared in heaven. I was explaining to him the truth of the word of God. This wasn't my opinion. I, I didn't want what I was saying to be true, but it was clearly true. And, he, and, so I, and I told him that not only were, would he not be forgiven of those sins, that there were no sins he would ever be forgiven of outside of Christ. And that he would die in his sins. And he would be punished for all of his sins when he stood before the Lord. And I could say that with absolute assurance. Not because I was better than him. Not because I have an anointing and he didn't. But I did believe the information that God had given to me from his word. He did not. Maybe he was ignorant of it. And so I was explaining those things to him. And so in that moment, going back to our definition of what is spiritual warfare, it's a, it's a warfare concerning truth. And what I was explaining to him was the truth of the word of God. I'm not sure what he was, why he was hoping he would be forgiven, what that would be based on. I don't know if he was thinking, maybe I'll be good enough. Maybe I can make up for this. Maybe if there's enough time that passes. You know, I'm not sure. I have no idea what he was basing his thoughts on. But truth was at stake, the truth of the gospel. And I needed him and I wanted him to understand the truth of the word of God and what it said. And that's what's being dealt with here in these passages. As I already mentioned, I can say to an individual, you are forbidden to do this or you are forbidden to do that. The authority that the elders have in a church is not to, to enforce um, some, some kind of a, a new budget in your life to tell you how you can spend and how you shouldn't spend your money. You know, it, it, it's to declare to you what the word of God says. And so when I tell you, or if any of the elders tells you that, that there are certain things you cannot do, it's not because we've made that up. It's, we're only going to declare to you what the scripture says. Outside of that, I, there's nothing I can say when it comes to certain things. And we need to, and we need to recognize that. Uh, I think I mentioned it before, there was a, you know, different fads have gone through the church through all the years. And back in the I think it was in the 80s. It was mostly uh, on the West Coast, and I, I don't know how far it spread, uh, but there was a, a movement. I think it was called the Shepherding Theology. It was something like that. But basically the idea was is that the pastor of the church had all authority over your life. And so uh, let's say Robert came to me and said he was thinking about getting a, a, a new job somewhere. Um, well, under this theology, he wasn't really telling me. He was asking my permission. And so if I said, uh, Robert, no, you, you can't take that job, then he would turn it down. Um, if if um, uh, Jill wanted to buy a refrigerator, she didn't ask Robert. She'd have to ask me. And I would make that determination. Now, I know you think that's pretty far-fetched, and, and it is. But there were some churches, they, they fell under that. And that, that kind of thing was going on. Uh, I didn't really catch on because, you know, Americans are really rebellious. <laughs> and so, you know, after a while, we're just not going to stand for that. Uh, but the idea was is that was in the church, in some churches uh, for a while. And people got, kind of got caught up in it uh, for a certain period of time. So, again, we have the authority. And, and you, as a believer, 
you have that right. It's not just something that elders have. It's part of what elders' responsibility is. But as believers, we have this authority to declare what? What the Word of God says. Now, we need to make sure that we know what the Word of God says. Don't twist the Word of God, you know, to your advantage. You know, don't, don't do that, okay? Um, sometimes we can do that without meaning to. Or maybe, maybe uh, we're, we're kind of loose with the Scripture. We have to be very careful. You don't, you don't do that. You know, there's a verse in Corinthians where it says that uh, you should not hang out with immoral people or, or with bad company because it corrupts uh, good morals. You know, there's that, that passage, and I've heard people say to their kids, the Bible says that if you hang out with those people, you'll be just like them. Okay, it doesn't say that. Okay, so don't do that. Uh, but you can, as a parent, say, I'm telling you, you're not going to hang out with so-and-so because that's my responsibility. That is what the Bible says. Well, it is. That is what the Bible says. Now, that doesn't give you carte blanche to, you know, be, be the, uh, the dictator in your child's life for the rest of their days. Um, that's not how we are to act as parents. But you get the idea. Sometimes we do that. And you might mean well, uh, but that's not the, the best way to go. But again, as believers, though, we do have the right to de- make those declarations. There's been times, I know for a fact, that people in this congregation have been asked by another person in this congregation, they're talking about their marriage and they're thinking of divorce, and the, and the Christian who's being asked the question says, you know, you can't do that. They, they absolutely have the right to say that and should say that to that individual. And so that's, again, the kind of things uh, that's going on here. You are engaged in that sense in spiritual warfare. And then you would pray for that individual, that they would submit to what the Word of God says. That they would not only do that, but that they would, they would seek to grow in, in the grace of Christ, the knowledge of the Scripture. That God would help them resolve the issues in their marriage. And perhaps even ask more questions or let other believers know so they can kind of intervene. So that's the spiritual warfare that we're going to engage in in that situation. But you don't just say, well, I bind Satan in your marriage. Yeah, you, th- that may sound good, but you're not doing anything. And we need to recognize that. that that's a, almost a, a, a cowardice way to pretend to help an individual when you're not, you're, not, you're not doing anything when you say that. And so we need to remember that. It can sound really good, and sometimes people may say, oh, thank you so much for praying for me. You know, I'm praying that. It can sound so good, but it's not helpful. It's not biblical. And we really do want to be in, when I say we want to be pragmatic, we don't judge Scripture in a pragmatic way. But the idea is we want to actually be able to do something that is legitimate, something that has weight to it, something that that is credible, and we want to follow what the Scripture says. And so then this binding of Satan in someone's marriage or what have you, that's that's not going to cut it. Um, We need to follow through what the Scripture says. So again, the authority of the church lies in the fact that the church has heaven's word on everything. And the church can take heaven's word and make it authoritative in the lives of people. And so the church is the authority of the word, of the world. And those who are in the church are authoritative in the world as long as they enforce the word of the living God revealed to them through the Spirit. So if you think about it, on one hand, in our culture, as our government moves forward to pronounce its blessing on certain things, the church, which is the people of God, have the right to declare that's wrong. That is immoral. We have the right to say that. Not because we're Americans, 
because we're Christians. We'd have the right to say that if we were living in communist Russia. You still probably end up in prison, but we have the right to say that. And so we can speak authoritatively on those matters. Christians have the right to speak authoritatively on moral issues because we believe the morality that has been given to us by God, not just in a general sense, in every sense. And so we need to make sure that we recognize that. We don't have to worry about what the world says. We're not going to change our message. We're not going to compromise. I've already me I mentioned this in Sunday school, and, and we've met this before on Sunday mornings. This has already happened in some countries. Canada, our closest neighbor, this has already happened, where speaking against homosexual unions was considered hate speech. And they declared that if you did that, the, you know, whoever said those things would be arrested. And three or four, uh, there may be more, but I know of three or four cases where a pastor was arrested for that. Uh, because they preached a message on that. Or in one case, he simply was reading from Romans chapter 1. And when he got to the part there that was basically proclaiming that homosexuality is on this long list of sins, the, they interrupted the church service and he was arrested at that moment. And so we, there are many who believe, and I think one day we'll be there. I don't know when our country would be there. Now I'll be honest, if I'm preaching through Lamentations and they suddenly make this law saying if you speak against homosexuality, we're going to arrest you, the next week, I'm not going to suddenly make my, my sermon in Romans 1. I'm going to continue through Lamentations. But what I am going to do is I'm not going to ever say, oh, oh I was just going to preach Romans 1 next week. I guess I won't. No, I'm going to keep doing it. Now, I know it's different for me because I've been in jail so much. I'm very comfortable there. Um, for those of you who are visiting, you can ask someone else why I would say that. But the bottom line is, is I'm not too worried about that. But the bottom line is, is that may happen. But we don't change our message. Right, we, we declare, because we have that right, and the church is supposed to do that. So we do have that authority. The reason we exist in the world as believers, the reason we exist as a church, is to glorify God. That is to speak well of God, to point to God. We are to hold up his name. We are to hold up his person. We glorify God when we hold up the standard of his word. So again, when it comes back to this idea of binding Satan, a couple of observations that are important. Number one, Nowhere in Scripture do we have an example of an apostle or prophet binding Satan. It's not in there. There is no command for us to do this. There is no teaching that regulates it. And there is no mention or any examples of it. Secondly, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the devil here is roaming around. He is not bound. So I, and I don't have the ability or the power to bind him. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And so the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. I believe, I take the book of Revelation, even though there's many symbols, I take it, the message is being literal. And when it says then, when you read through Revelation, there's a, there's a chronology of events, and there's a point in time coming when this will happen. When he will be bound, and you notice who does this, there's an angel that has the chain. This, this, this is not an evangelist, this is not a preacher, this is not a spiritual warfare teacher coming in and declaring this. This angel does this and binds Satan and tells us how long he's bound. He's bound for a thousand years. And so, again, it's the work of an angel uh, fulfilling the will of God at that time, not a believer. 
And as I mentioned before briefly, uh, the idea of binding Satan does raise other questions such as how long does the binding last? How do we know? And if he's, if it, obviously it's a temporary thing, so who is it that looses him? You know, what's, what's going on with all of that? And, so I th and, we, and those are very real questions. You know, it, it can sound kind of funny in a sense, but you know, we don't want to mock, maybe we do a little bit, but we want to mock it because it's kind of ridiculous. But here's the thing that's important. We don't want to just be individuals who can sound spiritual. That can feed the ego. I'm not saying everyone who does that, that's why they do that. I'm not saying that. There are some who do that. There are some who may think they're really doing some really good things when they do that. They're not really thinking about it biblically. The more biblical you try to think, and the more biblical you seek to act and, and speak, there will be those that you will meet who will feel a certain way about you, and it will be negative. They, they will view you as being kind of a spiritual party pooper. Because this sounds fun and exciting. They won't say it that way. But it is, there is an excitement to that. And sometimes people really get into it. It's a very, spiritual warfare is a very serious thing. And, it's, and we are engaged in it really all the time. And the Bible does tell us exactly how to fight this. And, and how to overcome this. And one of those passages is really, it's a very simple statement. It says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Well, you don't face him and start binding him. We, we read the word of God. We obey the word of God. We meet with other believers. We pray for each other and with each other. We worship God together. We hold each other accountable. And we seek to continue to say the word of God so we may know the truth. There you go. That, that's, I know that can sound unexciting. But remember, we're not living in a Hollywood world. You know, we're living in the very real world. And I guarantee you that if, that if you have a son or a daughter who is in a lot of difficulty in life, I don't think what you really want me to do if you say, Bob, my, my son is he's in college and he's just really struggling. If I just say to you, well, you know what? I just need to pray for your son. We're going to bind Satan. Really? Is that, is that what we're going to pray for? Because what does that do exactly? Maybe what we should do is we should pray for, for the Spirit of God to convict your son of, of his need of Christ. We can also pray specifically that God will raise up believers that, that he may even be surrounded by that will befriend him. And then along with that, we can pray that perhaps there'll be a specific Christian who will seek him out. Oh, and you know, we're part of a very large family. I can call a couple of churches around that college campus and maybe we can find one that has a, a campus ministry or they know someone has a campus ministry and they can look him up and they can not only begin to pray for him, maybe they can go talk to him. And we can do those things. And we can encourage him in, in the word of God. And we can also pray that, that, that whatever it is he's getting involved in, that he would begin to have a, a sense that, that this is just not it. It's not bringing him happiness. That perhaps that he would begin to feel maybe depressed, like, like whatever he's into, it's just losing its luster. We can pray for that as well. We can pray that maybe he will even experience, you know, maybe a little bit of depression, which can be very healthy. They can begin to wonder, you know, what is life really worth it? What a great question. And that God will continue to raise up believers around him to be able to answer those questions. Or maybe even mom and dad when they become despondent if that relationship is a good relationship. So there's a, there's a great deal of things we can pray for that I believe all comes right out of the word of God. And so hopefully you will not uh, 
allow yourself to kind of fall into this, this kind of hyper-spiritualized talk that really is empty speech. As I said before, spiritual warfare is a truth war. Running around binding Satan doesn't do anything. It does not help in bringing the lost to Christ, and it will not help you to grow or, mature or to mature in Jesus Christ. God's given us what we need. He's given us the tools. He's given us his spirit that indwells all of his people. And thank God that God has met our need and our cup is overflowing with the resources that God has given us. So continue to pray for those who don't know the Lord. Don't get caught up in the binding of Satan. Pray specifically for them. Even ask God to give you opportunities to be able to share with them. Befriend them. Do good for them. Follow what the scripture says. And uh, sometimes you can stand back and be amazed at the kinds of doors that God opens and the ways that he uses you or others in the life of individuals to transform them and to bring them the light of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. We thank you, Father, for the authority you've given us to be able to clearly declare to others the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we can know that our sins are forgiven and even that we can know that our sins are not forgiven if we are not believers. We thank you, Father, for the absolute truth of the word of God. And we do pray, Father, that you would help us to be those who will live in light of the truth, that we will stand on the truth, that we will obey the truth, and that we will declare the truth to others, that we will never do so out of arrogance, we will never do so out of a sense of cruelty or harshness, for that we'll always do so from a position of faith, firmness, and humility. There will be those who at least embrace the idea that you have in your kindness revealed your truth to us. Not that we have discovered it on our own merit. We pray, Father, for those who don't know Christ. And we do pray, Lord, that you would do what only you can do. And that is to convict them of their sin and their need of Christ. Father, we pray that you would enlighten them to the truth. That you would open their eyes. That you would take the veil off their heart. That they may see the truth of what we speak about. And they would embrace Christ. As always, Father, we are grateful for those of us, Father, who've never been caught up in these things, we thank you. For those who have been caught up in these things and have been delivered, we thank you for that as well. For those who may be uh, leaning in this way or perhaps they have been deceived in some ways, we, we just pray, Lord, that they would contemplate and think about the word of God and what it says. And we pray that you would deliver them, really, from the bondage of false teaching. And they would lie uh, in the great comfort and trusting Christ and his word. We thank you again, Lord, for being so good to us and so unbelievably patient. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.